If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn it on or turn in it, whichever the case is more appropriate for you, to start out with in Luke chapter 2, but then we're going to end up in Isaiah chapter 61. So however you can do that, the old-fashioned way, you could stick your finger in one. I don't know how you do that in an electronic version. If you stick your finger in your tablet, you're probably going to wreck your tablet, so I don't recommend doing that. You know, with Christmas, there's certain things that just sort of seem to kind of happen, and, and I found myself even doing it this morning. There's questions that you seem to need to ask at Christmas time as you interact with people, sort of certain questions. Maybe you're like me, and you kind of have a set list of questions already. When you interact with someone, you're going to ask them things like, what do you want for Christmas? Or what are you doing for Christmas? Or are you traveling for Christmas? Or do you have any family coming to see you for Christmas? I mean, if you're like me and you're socially awkward, you know, that can get you through like five, ten minutes easily. And then you're covered and you can go on to the next person and you can replay those same questions again. Now, when it comes to the Christmas story, biblical scholars and commentators kind of have their own set of questions they like to ask. They kind of want to figure out things that they come around to and sort of ask every year at Christmas. And the questions they ask, or at least the major question they ask, has to do with the shepherds. Since this is the third Sunday of Advent, the shepherd candle day, maybe we should ask some questions about the shepherds. Really, the question they ask about the shepherds is, why is it that the angels appeared to the shepherd? Why did that one angel go to the shepherd and then all of a sudden a myriad of angels? Why did they go to the shepherds? Well, the reason behind that question, the reason it gets asked really is because of expectations. You see, we would understand that angels, I mean, you read through the Gospel of Luke especially, angels kind of seem to play a pretty big role in this Christmas story thing. And we know that angels are messengers of God, and so we kind of expect when an angel shows up, something big's going to happen. Now, in our minds, if big announcements are going to be made, we're assuming they're going to be made to important people, you know, people that have clout and power, and yet we have this announcement being made to shepherds. And although there is some debate among scholars and all of that, there's a measure of people that aren't really sure that shepherds were that impressive of people. They weren't exactly what you'd call the upper echelon of society. We know if we go all the way back to Genesis 46 that the Egyptians kind of despise shepherds. That plays in the story of Joseph and his family, Jacob and the family coming to Egypt but they were despised. And what it seems like, at least to some measure through history, that kind of mindset toward shepherds spread. We know some from ancient documents written a little bit after the New Testament that shepherds were largely viewed by most people as second-class citizens, that they were not really worthy of your acknowledgement or your concern or your interest. There's some documents that would tell you that religious leaders would say that if you came across a shepherd who had fallen into a pit, you could just walk away and not worry about him. They weren't really that important. I mentioned last week that uh, I have jury duty this week. We'll see how that goes. I'm praying that there's no court cases. But if I went to court, and let's say we went back in a time machine to the, you know, early 
100 AD or maybe even closer to the time of Jesus, there'd be one person I can guarantee you I would not see in a courtroom, and that would be a shepherd. They were basically denied the civil right opportunity to testify in court as a witness. No one would trust them. So let's go back to that question. Why the shepherds? Why would the angels appear to those guys? Well, let me back up just for a second. We're going to get to that answer, but let me just back up to kind of what we've talked about in this series. We've kind of noted that there's a lot of different things that people struggle with in life. And from things I was encouraged to read about a year ago and then However it played out, I stumbled onto an article again this week that kind of emphasized it on Wednesday. It kind of underlined, and we're going to divide the room in thirds today because there's three of them. Some people struggle with despair and fear, and some people struggle with guilt. They just carry it with them. And some people struggle with shame. It just is a part of life. You can't seem to get rid of it. And if you and I were to climb into the shoes of the shepherds, or I guess sandals to be accurate, I don't think it would be any surprise if a shepherd maybe was struggling with some issues of shame in their life. I mean, if everything around you, if everybody said, you're a second-class citizen, you're really not that important, we don't want you around, we're not going to invite you to our parties, and if you're in a pit, that's on you, not on us. So much of life about you would scream out things like, you're not good enough, or there is something wrong with you. How would you not feel like you were an unacceptable outsider that nobody cared about? What do you do with that stuff? What do you do if you struggle with those kinds of issues, shame and guilt and despair? Because of the different events of life, those things, whether we like it or not, can be a part of our lives. Now, as we've been walking through this Advent journey, though, we've kind of seen that if you struggle with fear and despair, if that's kind of a part of your life, God says, hey, I've got a great deal for you. I'm going to give you my hope. You give me your fear, I'm going to give you my hope. And we talked about last week that if, if guilt is an issue, if guilt is something that tangles you up, God says, hey, here's my peace. Here's my peace. Give me all that other stuff. I'll take it. I want you to have my peace. But what about shame? What do you do if shame just sort of sticks to you? What do you do with that? Well, I want to read the verses that we read earlier. I'm not going to read all of them, but read some of them from Luke chapter 2 and kind of jump into their story for a second and see if that can get us, how do we deal with shame? So Luke chapter 2, read with me verse 8 down to verse 11. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, what? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I want you to notice a couple of things with me from verse 11 and in verse 10. We're going to kind of work backwards, so to speak. But I want you to notice very quickly in verse 11 is this. Is that the angel wasn't pointing to say, hey, you've got an issue. The angel wasn't pointing to, you need this self-help program or you need to read this set of books. See, if shame is an issue, if that's marking you, if that's kind of your thing, just like guilt could be your thing or despair could be your thing, in all those cases, what does the angel point to? The angel points to the manger. The angel points to the cross. The angel points to an empty tomb. Because the way we deal with our shame, how do we deal with our shame and our guilt and our despair? We deal with it all the same way. We deal with it by having an encounter with the Savior, the one we need to come to. That's why he's saying, hey, notice this. This is who you need. This is where you need to go in your life. You need to go to the one who's Christ the Lord. Second thing I want you to notice, coming out of verse 10, is I want you to zoom in on those words for all the people. And the reason I want you to zoom in on those words for all the people, and actually good news of great joy for all the people is this. Shame will do two things to people. One of the things shame does is it says you don't belong and you should be excluded. You should be that outsider that no one really wants. Another thing shame does is shame is a weapon that evil wants to use to suck out of you beauty and goodness and joy. But what does the angel say the good news wants to do? It wants to give you great joy. It wants to put it in you. And notice, who is it for? For all the people. We said earlier that shepherds were often viewed as second-class citizens. And we live in a world, unfortunately, where we can do that. We can treat people as if they're second-class citizens. But God is telling us this morning, in His eyes, there is no second-class citizen. I'm going to guess, and I don't know who it is, but I'm going to guess that there's some people in this room who maybe feel like or maybe have been treated like your second-class citizen. But God's statement to you this morning is you're not. This incredible news I have is for all people, even people who struggle with shame. Well, how does that work? How is it that Advent that does this thing? See, Advent kind of brings us to a reality. Advent forces us to realize we might have an issue with despair. Advent sometimes is going to raise up the issue we have guilt. And Advent, quite honestly, can bring us face to face the fact that we struggle with shame. How does it work that we can get rid of those things? Well, because Advent doesn't just expose us that we have a need. Advent also takes us on a journey that says you might be starting from despair. You might be starting from guilt. You might be starting from shame. But the journey of Advent takes us to the reality that God has so much more for us. God has greater things 
for you and me. But how does that work? How do we get these greater things that God has for us? How do we exchange those things so we get what he has? Well, this morning what I want to do and this idea of how do we exchange shame for joy is I want to kind of ask the question, what is this good news of great joy? I mean, the angel said, I've got good news of great joy. Well, what is that news? To help us address that, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 61. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's pound on page 620. And what I want to do is I just want to make four observations from verses 1 to 7 of, those, of Isaiah 61 and just kind of see, here's what Isaiah said is the good news. And to see, God says, I want to make an exchange. I want to do something for you so that you don't have to stay there. Stay in those old things. I've got something so much better for you. Observation number one to kind of get us started is this. The triune God wants you to know joy. One of the things this Advent journey should make us realize is God desires that you and I know there is joy. Look at how Isaiah begins, Isaiah 61 in verse 1 when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. Now we're going to read more of the verse. There is more to the verse. But those are words, and we're going to jump real quick, not in your Bibles, but in your minds, from Isaiah 61 to Luke 4. In Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he read those words. Now the reason I'm pointing that out is simply this. When you look at verse 1, it's very clearly, well, the Spirit of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit shows up in that verse. And also the Lord, we'd understand the Father's in that verse. But the one thing scholars and commentators and people like you and me, who's the me? Who's the me of that verse? Well, Jesus says in Luke 4, after he reads that verse, rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the guy, he stands up, actually he sits down. They'd stand up when the Bible was read, and then they'd sit down to teach. So I'm being anti-biblical, I'm realizing right now. And there's no chair here, so that's not going to change. Um, I'll sit down here maybe. That would probably, they'd sit down. He sat down and he said, this verse is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I'm the me. That verse is declaring to us that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in wanting to take your shame away from you and give you great joy. How committed is God to making this happen? How committed is God to do this exchange? This is how committed He is. They're all in. The Lord Jesus came to earth to fulfill a mission empowered by the Holy Spirit, authorized and endorsed by God the Father. How much does God want you and me released from these things? He is all in. The entire Trinity. This isn't a, hey, you go deal with that. We don't want to. I want you to understand that. When we talk about this good news of great joy, it's a declaration that the entire Godhead is on not just full alert, full action, completely fully engaged and involved so that you and I can have an exchange of 
joy for shame. Observation number two, second thing to see here is that joy really starts or comes with the good news. Just by saying there's good news, it means there's joy possible. Read with me the the words Jesus read from Isaiah 61. So we're going to read verse 1 and part of verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that's all that Jesus read. That's not where Psalm 60, or Isaiah 61 stops, but he stopped there. And the reason we think he stopped there in the middle of the verse was basically to say this. I'm coming the first time, and I am coming to start this process of exchanging your shame for my joy, and I want to get that started right now. Now, there's more to the verse, and there's more to the joy. We've got to wait for some of that, yes, But Jesus is saying, I'm coming and I want you to have joy right now. I want this good news of joy. Here it comes. Now to help us understand that, he kind of unpacks some of what that looks like. I want you to notice a couple of things with me. First is it says the good news is for the poor. Now what Jesus meant by that and what Isaiah meant by that had nothing to do with money. What they meant was someone who was afflicted. Someone who in some way in their life was destitute or distressed. Now, part of the reason why I just want to stop here for a second and make sure we understand that, that this isn't a financial thing, is simply this. Most of us in this room have reasonable resources. And there's a challenge that can come with that. One of the things that happens in our cultural thing is basically, hey, if you've got more stuff, if you've got more money, you're going to solve your problems. Everything is going to be good if you've got more. We kind of live and operate in that kind of a mindset. Here's the irony. I've read some stuff about people who struggle with shame. And one of the things that's striking when Jesus says we're here to good news for the poor is how many wealthy CEO types of people that have more money than they'll ever know what to do with are trapped in shame. And they're stuck there. And they don't have a clue what to do with it. See, if you and I buy into the mindset that if I have more money, everything's going to be okay, we're not going to see there's really a hole in my soul that isn't going to be addressed because I've got more stuff. If you're hoping you're going to have something special, so to speak, under the tree that's going to make life great this year, it's not. It's not more stuff. It's not more resources. Jesus is saying, I know there's issues in your life and I want to touch those. Which is why where he goes is right away to the poor. How does he describe them? He talks about them being brokenhearted. By there, what he's really meaning is there's places in all of our lives where something's not quite right. 
And Jesus says, in those parts of your life where you're afflicted, I want you to know that I want to bind you up. I want to touch you there. I want to revive you and give you life where you feel run over. I want to touch you deeply. I want you to know something. The idea of liberty, as he goes on, really is is the freedom that our series in, in Galatians has been trying to tell us about. He's saying, hey, I don't want you to be in bondage to sin. I don't want shame and that stuff to get you so trapped. I want you to be free of that. Then there's this opening of the prison thing, and to be quite honest, a lot of scholars sort of scratch their heads. And the reason they scratch their heads on that verse is because Isaiah does something that every English teacher tells you never to do, and that is to mix metaphors. We understand what a prison is, but the word opening that's used there, that word is often used or most often used in the idea of not of opening a prison door, but of opening somebody's eyes, of somebody being able to see clearly. They can't, but now they can. Isaiah says there's a sense in which you and I can be in a prison in which we can't see life clearly. And it's interesting, if you read about people that struggle with shame, one of the things that's true in their lives, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to pick on you guys, we just divided the room in three, so don't, I'm not saying you guys have issues with shame. I am saying these people have issues with guilt though, okay? It's it's just all over your faces, you're guilty, you know. We need to talk about that afterwards, by the way. But people who struggle with shame... It's as if they describe life that they can't seem to see life clearly. That somehow shame is distorted. They can't quite grasp it. And what Isaiah is telling us, what this good news is, God wants to exchange our clouded vision. He wants to open our eyes so that we can see life clearly. Now I want to pause here just for a second. Say, why do you want to pause here for a second? Because I think that opening of eyes is a bigger deal than you and I often realize. Why do I say that? In Brad's song, there was a line about Jesus opening the eyes of a blind man. That story is told in John chapter 9. The man was born blind and Jesus opened his eyes and that created a huge stir. At the end of John 9, and this is where it ties into Isaiah and it ties into us, At the end of John 9, Jesus talks to the religious leaders of the day who are having major indigestion about what Jesus did. Hit the pause button just for a second. I want to think about us in this room. A lot of us in this room are smart. A lot of you are smart. A lot of you are educated. A lot of you are accomplished. Smart, educated, accomplished people start to look at life like, you know what, I've got this figured out. I know what to do. We can think that, we can conclude that, and quite honestly, we can assume that. Unhit the pause button. Let's go back to the Pharisees, back to these religious leaders. Who were they? They were people who were smart. They were people who were 
educated, and they were people who were accomplished. And when Jesus describes them at the end of John 9 in that story, what does he say about them? He says even though they can physically see, they were spiritually blind. I'm virtually certain that I am educated beyond my intelligence. Which makes me pause and ask the question, do I realize how much I need the Lord Jesus to open my spiritual eyes so that I really see life? And have I missed out on His joy because I can't see it? And I'm wondering, folks, if part of this Christmas season, part of this Advent journey, is you and I need to ask the question, God, do you need to open my spiritual eyes so that I truly see and so I don't assume and presume because I'm smart and educated and accomplished that I've got this figured out? Have I had an encounter with Him where He's opening my eyes? Real quick, that last phrase, that year of favor, is basically a comment of him saying, here it all is. I want you to have it. I want you to know this. Observation number three, keep moving. Time moves way too fast when I'm talking. That's code. I'm going to try to land this on time. Observation number three, joy is deep and lasting. Okay? Jesus didn't finish reading the verse in the synagogue. Again, His first coming, I want to do some things. I want to do some things immediately. I want you to know those things right now. I want that part of the joy exchange to take place. But Jesus said there's more to it than that. So verse two, all of verse two and into verse three, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress of, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Now, Jesus stopped, and he didn't get to the day of vengeance, but the verse goes into the day of vengeance. Say, why does that come up? We're talking about joy. Why judgment? If you and I are going to have deep, enduring, permanent joy, evil's got to be dealt with. The stuff that sucks joy out of us has to be severed. It's got to be dressed. And Isaiah says that's going to happen. God is going to deal with this. He's going to take care of it. He's going to move and do this. Notice, though, very clearly. Sorry, I got a lot. It's up. I guess it's on the earlier screen. Sorry, it's too many screens on there in my head. It's a day of vengeance, but it's a year of favor. Don't miss that. Okay? But moving on from there, if evil requires judgment, we get that. Another thing about evil, 
whether you're talking about despair, whether you're talking about guilt, whether you're talking about shame, all those things mark us. All that evil stuff marks us. And what do you do with that? We've got to be touched. We've got to be healed. So where does Isaiah go next? He is a call to comfort. For all of us to be comforted, for that damage to be undone, for us to be touched in a way. He wants to take us past our hurts. And he says, here, I want to move in your life in a way that you can literally, as verse 2 unfolds and goes on into verse 3, I want to do this incredible exchange. I want to take you from a place of mourning, from funeral clothes. I want to bring you into a party. I want you to have these amazing things that God is offering each of us. When he says that headdress, I mean, when people would mourn them, they'd put ashes on their head. Instead, get rid of those, clean those up, get on a headdress of a party. Put that oil on you, get the praise of spirit. This is what God wants to do. Long term, this enduring joy, what does he want you and I to have? Instead of us mourning things that hurt, he says, I'm going to exchange that. Here's my joy, deep and lasting and profound, so deep and lasting that your life is going to be transformed by God in a way that you look different. You're going to, in essence, express a new identity. You're going to be called an oak of righteousness. You're going to be given a new name because I'm going to bring joy in your life. You're going to be so different. Now, a huge thing to notice is God does that. Okay, it's a planting of the Lord that He's going to be glorified. Somehow, in this amazingness of how God works, He does this thing in us that we're literally changed. He's glorified. Folks, a principle that I've said, and I don't know how many times, probably two, three times a year, so it's a year end, I've got to get, get it in, make sure I cover it, is if God is glorified, that is always for our benefit. See, if God is glorified in this huge thing of make changing my life, then that means my shame is gets rid of. He exchanges it and says, Lloyd, give me. I'm giving you my joy in a deep way, in a lasting way, so that you literally look different, that the tenor of your life is changed. That's an amazing thing. Observation number four. God also, or joy makes us useful to God. The work of God, he's going to make us useful to him. One of the things about shame is it makes us feel like we're useless. It makes us feel like we're damaged. And if that sticks to us, if we start to believe that, if the shepherds believe that, if you and I believe that, we're never going to do anything. We're like, why even try? I don't matter. And God says, when I do this exchange thing, I need you to understand, I've got things for you to do. You are useful to me. Verses 4 and 5, Isaiah gets excited and he says, they shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. Okay, verse 4 saying, look, there is damaged stuff. That's a reality. But here's what I do. Here's what my joy does. It begins to rebuild and replace those things. The incredible truth of the gospel, this incredible good news of great joy, is if you trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, 
God says, here's the deal. I'm going to exchange your shame for my joy. I'm going to do this work where I literally make you new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, in Christ you are a new creation. Ruins were there, yes. I make you new. But not only that, Titus chapter 3, verse 5 will tell us that when we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit becomes a part of our lives, and He does this work of renewal in us. We're renewed. We're restored. And He does all of that to call us to say, serve me. And I think the point of verse 5 is God's going to organize and orchestrate our lives so we can serve Him. We can be of use to Him. And then verse 6 kind of puts a picture of what does it look like to serve Him. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. You shall, they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. They shall eat of the, you shall eat of the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Shame wants to tell us we're useless. God says, no. We're useful. So useful that he says, you're going to be my priests. You're going to be my representatives in the world wherever I place you. Folks, it is not accidental that you live where you live and you do what you do. God has put you there for reasons and purposes, and a huge one of those reasons and purposes is for you to be called one of his ministers. Do you understand that one of the ways God wants you to know and experience his incredible joy is by you being his representative in your family and in your school and in your workplace and on your block. That's not an accident. He's done that because he wants his joy to flow through you and for you to share that incredible message. God says, you're useful to me, and I want to take your shame away and fill you with joy so it oozes out of you to other people. Let me wrap this up. Let's declare, in essence, this exchange. Look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have what? Everlasting joy. The thrust of Isaiah 61, in one sense, is very simple. God wants you to have something other than shame. He wants you to have everlasting joy. Let me ask you a question. What came with you today that you need to exchange? I'm not talking about what you're going to do on December 26th. Okay, when you got the wrong stuff for Christmas, so you go to the store and exchange it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what did you bring in the room with you today that you need to exchange? Was it despair? Because God says if it is, here's my hope. 
Was it guilt? God says, here, here's my peace. Was it shame? God says, here's my joy. I want to exchange those. God says, I have so much more for you than those things. I want to give you all of this. I want you to know this. Please hear me. If you're walking around with fear and despair, if your life is tangled up in guilt, or if shame is a closer friend to you than your smartphone is, God is saying, I've got an exchange. The reality of Advent is God says, I will exchange your despair for my hope. I will exchange your guilt for my peace. And I will exchange your shame for my joy. That is what He wants to take us to. I praise you and I walk this road. We will hear over us the words of Isaiah 61, 7 again. Instead of your shame, there shall be double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the midst of all the things that are a part of our lives, it can be so easy for us to be trapped, to be caught. All kinds of things bombard us All kinds of things can distort us. And yet in Advent, you're wanting us to walk with you and experience something so much different. Father, I pray and I ask that we would hear you crying out to us. Come to my gift exchange. Get rid of the stuff that bogs you down, I'll take it and receive from me hope and peace and joy. Lord, I pray as we go through this Christmas season, we would receive from you all that you have and to realize that you extend us these gifts, not in boxes with pretty wrapping paper, but in the person of the Savior, the one we need, the one we need to follow and submit to, and the one who loves us so much that he died for us in our place and rose again to give us your amazing gifts. May we receive those from you today. In the very precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, we pray.